Hey everyone, and welcome back to Behind the Numbers. My name is Dave Bookbinder. I'm a managing director at B. Riley Financial and author of the new ROI, Return on Individuals. Thanks again for tuning in. On this program, we've talked many times about building a solid corporate culture and engaged corporate culture. Today, we're going to be talking about how to create a leadership culture. And I'm pleased to welcome my guest today, David Wyman, who's president of Wyman Consulting. David, welcome to Behind the Numbers. Dave, it is great to be with you. Pleasure is all mine. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about who you are, who you are, and then we'll get started. Sure. Uh, I am a psychologist, and I run a leadership consulting firm. So we help organizations of all types become more successful, and we do that through helping them select top talent, uh, do executive coaching work, and also leadership development consulting and seminars. And all of these are designed to help people, teams, and the whole organization become more efficient and more effective. Uh, we've worked with companies that most of the people watching this would have, would know, uh, the Siemens Corporation, Johnson & Johnson, uh, U.S. Department of Labor, the Department of Defense, Department of Justice, and a few other federal departments. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're really happy to be with you today. Awesome. We're excited to have this conversation. And I want to start by defining what leadership culture is. Like I said at the opening, you know, we've, we've talked in this program about different types of corporate cultures, usually around something that's engaged and cooperative and so forth. What's a leadership culture, David? I think it's a combination of sort of three core elements. One is the values of the organization, the things that it prizes most. Uh, the second is the purpose of the organization. What do they do? What do they tell people they do? And do people within the culture understand that? And the third thing is the, the mission. And by that, I don't mean something lofty or ethereal, but um, where do they see themselves going over the next three years? Where do they wish to be? Um, and, and again, that's not a big picture kind of vision or uh, from the classic Harvard Business you know, Review article about the big, hairy, audacious goal. It is really where we headed over the, over the next few years. And I think particularly as we're moving past um, the pandemic in some ways and people are getting accustomed to new ways of working, um, these three elements are, are super important. Yeah, can we just kind of do a little dive into each of those? Because when you think about values, in um, looking at companies' websites, there's, there seems to be a lot of cliche, right? There's a lot of duplication of, of, of core values. What makes them unique and what makes them, I guess, more importantly, impactful for the organizations? I like um, the, the idea that the values are things that, even if they were not a competitive advantage, the company would still, would, would still maintain. And a great example of that is what happened with Johnson & Johnson in the Tylenol uh, scare that happened in the 1980s. Because one of their core values, which is uh, part of the Johnson & Johnson credo, is to always be honest with all their core constituents and stakeholders. And when this incident happened with tainted Tylenol in the Chicago area, um, at the time that this crisis meeting was held among the, the key executives there, their chief executive officer was in a plane and unreachable. And they say that they went into the Johnson & Johnson boardroom and the credo was on the wall. And that value is what guided the decisions they made after that. And, and I think there's an example there. A lot of times when <clears throat> corporations get into some kind of trouble, they kind of now go into spin mode. 
and there's crisis consultants that they engage and I think they start to march away from the values but a value like that that we're going to be honest um, with the people who depend on us is something that in that case by the way I believe at the time there were some like New York PR firms who were telling them not to they were doing these constant um, news updates where executives were getting in front of news cameras and sharing what they knew at the time and they were getting advice from PR executives not to do that but they stuck to their values and I think that's an example there of one that um, is key it's core to the company it's part of who they are it's part of who they've always been and they stuck to it even at a time when you might argue it wasn't a, a competitive advantage to do that yeah good example so help us then clarify what may be a blurred line between the concepts of purpose and mission and I, I think most folks have heard the Simon Sinek expression start with why and I think a lot of companies have embraced the idea of articulating sure. their why in either their purpose or their mission but uh, how, how do we actually define the, the difference between a purpose and a mission in a way that's effective and impactful a, a colleague of mine says that the purpose is I help blank what whoever it is that I help is the client to achieve something by this thing that we do so that is really the what it's 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 what the company does that's the purpose um, for me the values are kind of how we how we do that um, so it, and people can boil that down any way that they want I, for, for me we've been working on purpose we look at it every year when I say we I mean the um, the two other folks who work with me and that purpose has been tweaked a little bit but essentially it's to help organizations achieve their biggest goals that's what we define as our purpose um, it sounds sort of simple but I'm wondering if really what we do is serve other people um, and that that's the purpose there but but I see that as the what and if somebody wants to make that more specific and and be more specific about who they serve and incorporate into that um, what it is that they provide I think that works um, the purpose there I think is something that is both strategic and tactical we should be able to measure what we're doing against that purpose and decide is this prospective project that we have is that something that we do is that one of our core services or not and if it isn't should we be referring that prospective client to somebody else should we take it on and expand our capabilities or what should we do about that but all of these things are are yardsticks by which we might measure uh, what we're doing and how we're doing it so to, to address your question about the, the difference between the values and the purpose to me the, the values is the what uh, sorry the purpose is the what and the values is sort of how we go about that the, the, how we want to do our jobs and, and the mission is kind of the, the why piece then the, the mission is to, to me the mission is where we're going where we okay. intend to be uh, ultimately okay so now that we've established the framework for this leadership culture construct how do we then apply that in assessing talent I think so often when we're assessing talent um, particularly among entrepreneurial leaders who've gotten where they are by being super nimble and thinking on their feet and thinking on the fly they often value or prize even unconsciously somebody who seems like them um, when we're assessing for these things in the work that I do we actually ask the company to clarify if they haven't already what the values actually are and disconnect that a little bit from the personality of the person doing the interview because those unconscious biases can uh, have somebody 
we're you know really interested in someone who may not share the values of the company. But to be honest with you, it's kind of simple. We ask basic questions in my work about things that this person felt they did successfully in the past. Tell us about a recent uh, accomplishment, something that went really well, that you were involved with and why you think it went so well. And then we'll ask the opposite of that, to share with us something that didn't go so well. And from their answers, we're really seeing their values in action because people tend to act in accord with their values. And so it's really by just having them share with us examples of things uh, that they've done, that they've been directly involved with, both on a positive side and then things that didn't have a positive outcome. Um, you can kind of listen between the lines for the values that are driving that behavior. Yeah, David, for the folks who are watching and listening and want to learn more about you, how they can get in contact with you, maybe work with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, our website is wymanconsulting.com. Wyman is W-E-I-M-A-N, if they don't already see it on the screen. And the uh, phone number at the office here is 610-642-3040. Awesome. We only have a few minutes to go in this segment, David. Figure about three minutes to go in this segment. But I want to ask you one more question before we go to a commercial break. Uh, so being a psychologist, you've got a unique toolkit that I guess most folks who are doing interviews don't have access to. So when folks are going on an interview and they're, they're talking about their you know, the tell me about and a time when answer, uh, a lot of times that could be scripted. How do, how do you know then uh, when someone is really giving you the straight scoop or whether you're getting a snow job and that when they arrive at the organization they're going to be living in, in congruence with those values? One thing that I think psychologists do in talent assessment that is different than what non-psychologists do is we don't look at any one piece of data in isolation. We try to look at a convergence of themes. So the interview is just one piece of that. Um, and so we would use pre-hire uh, questionnaires, some of which we've created, some of which um, are well-researched and, and often used uh, talent assessment tools. But you don't want to rely on just one answer to a question. Um, and, and so if you start seeing a theme where, for example, the LinkedIn profile differs from the resume uh, in significant ways. And then in the written communication that they have back and forth with you, you pick up on that, that kind of disconnect as well. And then in the interview, the response seems scripted. Um, that is important. That's an example of convergence of data where things just don't line up very well. Uh, with regard to those questions in particular, though, we have uh, several questions that we ask in any interview that are pretty basic and having done thousands of these you get kind of calibrated to that and I think that's one of the benefits of using an external consultant to do talent assessment than doing it internally because internally if the chief operating officer is conducting those interviews they might do a few interviews a year um, I may do a few interviews every week and over 20 years this is our 20th year in business um, you kind of start to develop this um, intuitive sense uh, in addition to what's what's factually happening but uh, the other piece of that is the follow-up questions that I ask based on what I'm hearing and so the follow-up questions may reveal that the person is trying to script that answer rather than it having what Judge Judy calls you know the ring of truth to it <laughs> so um, part of that is convergence of data part of it is the experience and the intuitive sense of that Gotcha. Thank you, Dave. Why don't you sit tight there, you folks at home watching and listening. We're going to take a quick pause here, pay a few bills, 
and we'll be right back on Behind the Numbers after this quick break. So, I'm kind of new here, but I've noticed a trend. My human does this funny thing where she goes around and gets all my toys, and then she hides them in that basket by the door. You know, but it's always the same basket, and it's always in the, in the same place. And then she acts so surprised when I find them, but, you know, she's putting them in the same basket. Again. It's like, hello? That's where you put it last time. You were the worst at hide-and-go-seek. Welcome back to Behind the Numbers. I'm Dave Bookbinder, and today we're talking about building a leadership culture with David Wyman, who's president of Wyman Consulting. David, I want to kind of continue on the theme that we left off with at the end of the sure. first segment here. And in, in talking about leadership and leaders in, in particular, are there, are there certain, we'll call them competencies, traits, personality, or otherwise, that really make for a good leader? And how do you identify those? I think Daniel Goleman did all the hard work for us already when he laid out his conceptualization of social and emotional competencies. And what's awesome about what he did is he sort of captured, uh, and part of this is based on years of research, and but it also is written in a way that's accessible to anyone in business. He kind of divided the competencies into two main areas. There's personal competencies that are just related to you as an individual, and then there are ones that are social, involve you, involving you in intera your interactions with other people. And within them, he makes a distinction between things that you know and then how you manage what you know. So for example, on the personal side, I may be aware that I get frustrated in meetings when people talk for a long time and don't get to the point. That doesn't mean that I manage that very well, though. <laughs> so he has these kind of two aspects of the personal competencies, self-awareness and self-management, and in the social side, my organizational awareness, my ability to read the emotions in a room, that's a skill that I have, 
Um, but the management part of it is how do I use that? How do I use that to get to, to connect with other people or to motivate other people? And generally, the higher up you go in leadership, as, as you and I both know, it's less about the technical skills that you have. If you're applying for a CFO role, nobody's going to give you a math test. They assume you know math, but they really want to know how you lead and motivate and connect with other people. That's where the action is. And it's funny because it, a, a professor of mine used to say, people get jobs with their technical skills, but they lose them because of a lack of interpersonal skills. Uh, but definitely the higher up you go in leadership, the competencies, the social and emotional competencies become more important. And in fact, in Goldman's research, uh, and this is published in the, in the books and articles that he's written about this, these social and emotional competencies may account for more of the executive's success than some of the technical skills do. Um, so they're super important. Oh, for sure. Where does emotional intelligence fit in that continuum? That is the really the ability to read the emotions in other people and manage those effectively. And so some companies may have as a competency, for example, something that's super business related, like the competency might be the person's ability um, to participate in strategy sessions, to think ahead, to see around the corner. That's a totally legitimate competency to have, and we help companies look at that. In the talent assessment and the leadership development space, um, the social emotional ones are, the, are riding alongside with that, because if you just had strategy chops, but you never ask any questions and you don't care what other people think and it's your way or the highway, you won't be very effective in an organizational setting. Yeah, are those skills that can be learned or is it one of those things where you either have it or you don't and you need to weed that out right up front? Awesome question. I believe that they can be learned, but it's there's this old joke, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? And the answer is one, but the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> and so. If I have strategy chops, like I love thinking ahead, I love doing competitive intelligence, but I really don't like interacting with other people, I may choose not to participate in leadership development or a leadership role. I may be super happy as an individual contributor. You bring me in when you need you know, some, some strategy input. I might be in a strategy department, but I'm not leading other people. Um, and that's okay because organizations need individual contributors too. Yep. So now we've figured out how to create a leadership culture. We've defined the competencies of good leadership or great leadership then. So let's talk about the, the impact of all of this on the organization in terms of the benefits or the ROI, if you will. And I, I would imagine in creating this kind of environment, you get better retention statistics, but I'll let you answer the question. What, what else do we see from an organizational benefit? You see more efficiency and you see more effectiveness all the way down through the organization. But let's say that somebody, and you often see this in 360 degree assessment reports, because I may feel I do an awesome job of letting my team know how their individual work connects to bigger picture goals. But when consultants come into organizations and do surveys, they often find out that as you go lower in the hierarchy, people say, well, I know what I do every day. I know I come in and I screw the, 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 the top on this, uh, this bottle, but I have no idea how that helps the company at all. So really effective leaders are able to connect these dots. Why does that matter? Because if something goes wrong, you want people to think on the fly and solve problems. You don't want them to be dependent 
on the leader to tell them what to do every minute of the day. Um, managers who are worried that employees don't trust employees try to, that's where micromanagement came from. They're literally control, you know, trying to control everything that, that the uh, people who report to them do. That doesn't build capacity. I don't want people who just know what to do when I tell them to do it. I want it so that if I don't show up that day for some reason, the whole operation doesn't shut down. Um, and that's how you start building capacity. And that's why it's more efficient. And that's why it's more effective. Yeah. David, how can folks connect with you if they want to learn more or uh, perhaps want to work with you? The website, wymanconsulting.com, um, has our service areas there, uh, FAQs. In addition to FAQs, we have SAQs. Uh, those are should ask questions, <laughs> things that we know um, tend to come up that are issues for people that they might not think to ask. Um, there are videos there with examples of different uh, uh, types of information, helps, or, or techniques um, that we provide. And also, there's a sign up for a newsletter uh, that we do on leadership that's uh, right on the homepage. Yeah, I actually subscribe to that newsletter. Good stuff. I suggest folks jump out there and uh, hit the subscribe button on that. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. So, Dave, let, let's talk a little bit about the difference or distinction between developing the senior leadership team, which has the chops, as you alluded to, and, and maybe the, um, the up-and-coming leaders. How do you develop the leaders of tomorrow? Is it a, a different kind of a lens that you look at them? There's a, um, an assessment firm that actually looks at those two very, a, a little, I was about to say very differently, I'm not sure they're very different, but they deal with management effectiveness a little bit differently than they do with leadership effectiveness. And I'm reminded of this quip, I forget who said it, um, but you, you uh, manage processes and you lead people. And so among managers, often what they're doing is making sure that people are doing things the right way. They're making sure that things happen according to a schedule. They, ha they should have good time management skills. They should be able to pace out the work. They should be able to recognize when employees are a little overtaxed. I think the higher up you go, it's less about the making sure people are doing things the right way and making sure people are doing the right things. So it's a little more strategic the higher up you go. And that's where you might see more tactical things happening um, in management development. Like they're literally learning how to manage to a schedule or manage projects. The higher up you go, it's a little bit more about getting results from people. Yeah. David, one of the terms that we hear an awful lot is servant leadership. Can you help us all to understand what that really means? When you ask somebody what they do for a living and they give you a technical answer, that's the product, that's the thing that they provide or the service that they provide. Yeah. Servant leadership is in your heart and soul feeling that your purpose is to serve others. And you may do that in different ways, um, but it's, it's a mindset that I'm not there to get money and then do something. I'm not there to uh, dish out my expertise or slice off a few pounds of whatever it is my company does, but I'm there to serve other people. And that, that mindset means I may behave differently in a situation where um, the, the person, they might benefit from something I don't do. If I have a, a servant leadership mentality or servant mentality in general, I may try to help them find who can help them do that I won't just say, hey, we don't do that, sorry. 
Um, so it leads to different behavior. It's the same with a servant leader within an organization. If they view their role as to help other people get better, then that's servant leadership. If they view their role as to show everyone how smart they are, that's not servant leadership. But a lot of people have, a lot of leaders and others have so much ego investment in what they do, they find it super hard to leave time, air, and space for other people to shine. They have a very difficult time not having the spotlight all the time. They're usually known, by the way, in organizations as non-servant leaders because it's not so much about developing others. You know, look, there's leaders who are afraid if this high potential really shines, I look like I'm, you know, I don't know what I'm doing, or, or they won't share information um, with other people because they're holding on to it uh, so tightly. The servant leader doesn't care about that. The servant leader is there to, to help other people get better at what they do. Yeah, and, and oh, I've heard so many stories about that. I've had other guests on this program who, who talk about exactly what you just described. And uh, a lot of times leaders uh, feel like they have to be the one to have all the answers, whether it's ego-driven or just because they have this sense of obligation and that only creates problems for them. So, oh, and, and it's super inefficient because you don't want people constantly going to the leader asking questions because that means that they don't know something they should or if the leader just gives them answers, the leader is the answer manager instead of somebody who's developing people. When somebody comes to the leader, servant leader with questions, the servant leader is probing to find out what that person already knows. What are their ideas? What are the options they're thinking of? How can I help this person develop their capacity um, and their, their critical thinking skills, not feeling good because I know something. Uh, a really talented leader that I know said, in, at the end of uh, a training that I'm doing, he was just using this as an example, people should feel that they are smart, not that I am smart. <laughs> I think that's a great example of that's that. That's a great way leadership. to put it in a microcosm, and I think that's a great place to wrap up the program. David, thank you so much for joining us today on Behind the Numbers. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Our pleasure, and thank you at home for watching and listening. We appreciate you tuning in. We can't do it without you. Please be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you're watching or listening, and uh, let us know uh, what you think. Reach out. You can reach me on uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. Look forward to hearing from you. My name is Dave Bookbinder, and I will see you next time on Behind the Numbers. Take care, everybody.